things like the Crusades or invoking the Old Testament for the colonization of America were all acts of sin, showing you just how important hermeneutics is, <laughs> you know. everybody, Mike Erie here. Uh, thanks for tuning into the Vox Podcast. Joined today by uh, one of my favorite writers. Um, he is Tremper Longman III. Um, are you still teaching at Westmont? Have you retired from that position? I've actually retired from the endowed chair I had things, but we retired a little early to move closer to... Um, closer to our kids and grandkids out here on the East Coast. So I'm doing more itinerant teaching all around the world, actually. But uh, Wow, you're on, the, you're on the East Coast now. Yeah, yeah. We live in Alexandria, Virginia. Whoa. Washington, D.C. area. So uh, from, to, from Santa Barbara. From Santa, after 19 years in Santa Barbara. Before that, we were in Philadelphia. So we're really oh, East okay. Coast who temporarily were um, – who temporarily were on the West Coast and loved it. Loved it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what? Um, and you're originally from Upper Arlington, which is where I happened to move to when we moved back from Orange County. And yeah. um, you had mentioned there's some some big celebration about a state championship <laughs> you and Allender were yeah. a part of. What the heck's that? Okay, so uh, 50 years ago in 1969. I was a senior at Upper Arlington High School, and so was my friend Dan Allender, who uh, and neither of us were really Christians in the fall. So, uh, but we so so um, but we played on the football team, and Upper Arlington has had, especially back then, a really good football team. They had won two yep. state championships in a row, and we. Continued the continued the streak, and we won the state championship in 1969. And we're all gathering together in September for a 50th reunion. So oh, that, that is calendar, awesome. Calendar is up in Seattle, and I will be meeting our friends. Many of them became Christians too in college oh. during the Jesus Revolution time. So it'll be it'll be fun to go back and see everybody. Well, there will be a man waiting for you with a podcast um, upon your arrival that may, that may allow you to write the trip off. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Just throwing it out there. I'll, I'll uh, check with my tax lawyer. <laughs> yes. So so uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we spend a lot of time on the podcast dealing with um, a lot of the big questions surrounding the the scriptures and culture and politics and faith and and. Um, and you just came out with a book. I, I finished it. I mean, I finished it as soon as I got it. Uh, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions About Evolution, Sexuality, History, and Violence. And so, so perfect, perfect, perfect timing uh, as so many of these issues have been swirling around and people have been offering their various takes for them. So I would love to start... Uh, by by talk just where you do by talking about how it is that you approach the Bible, yes, but the Old Testament specifically, because you know uh, there there's a very public and recent advocate of the view that that hey we need to um, unhitch was the word he used, but but we need to 
uh, some of these issues would go away if, if we just didn't regard the Old Testament as for us uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so why, you know, I mean, it's an obvious question, but why spend time even wrestling through the Old Testament text? Sure. No, it's a it's an important question. And of course, I've heard that quote as well and know that there's a sentiment among Christians today to sort of disassociate from the Old Testament. Right. But it is <laughs> the word of God. And such attitudes are replicating an ancient uh, viewpoint that was declared a heresy in the early church, uh, connected with a popular preacher of his day named, right. uh, named Marcion. And, and for one thing, uh, you're disassociating yourself from 77% of the word of God. And also the, the fact is that you can't understand the new Testament without the old Testament. And the fact is that the new Testament is for instance, as violent as the old Testament, when you take into consideration, you know, the passages that talk about, Christ's second coming. And so what typically happens with people like Marcion and their modern counterparts is then they start whittling away at the parts of the New Testament that they don't like. And, right. and so you end up sort of creating a God in your own image. Now, that's not to say, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that they're not issues of what I would call continuity and discontinuity between right. the Old and New Testament. You know, we obviously don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but that doesn't mean that the whole Old Testament law is no longer relevant for us, particularly when we see the New Testament, say, in the matter of sexuality, reaffirming exactly what the Old Testament said. Um, and and so, um, so we have to definitely take into account continuity and discontinuity. And as I point out in the book, uh, in the period between the first and second coming of Christ, we're in a period of spiritual warfare where, unlike the Old Testament, uh, the people of God are not to use violence in order to further uh, the gospel. Uh, that's really clear, but that doesn't mean we disown God's work in the Old Testament. And Jesus certainly didn't. Jesus fully affirmed the Old Testament. So, so, uh, so, so you've managed, you've managed to hit on almost every controversial issue in one answer. So well done. <laughs> well done. What? Yeah. And I just want to, I want to set some things up because they, they obviously hugely influence how you approach the issue. Um, you, when, when you talk about inerrancy, I, I don't, I personally don't find it a hugely helpful word and I get into uh, yeah. some hot water for that. Yeah. Um, what's your what's your view on inerrancy, and then how it relates to interpretation? Sure, uh, that's our, a great question, and, yeah. and and I certainly understand that it's it's not a great word in terms of, but it but the concept that as articulated in the so-called Chicago Statement on Inerrancy is important. Uh, basically, I think. Well, I know what. Um, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy says, which is the Bible's true in everything that it intends to teach. 
Um, unfortunately, some people use that term in order to say the bio, my interpretations of virtually every point in the uh, on the Bible are inerrant. And I try to make the distinction between the inerrancy of the Bible, still not a good word because it's so propositional and the Bible's more than propositions, but there are propositions, I mean, true false propositions. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but on the other hand, um, but if I think we need to affirm the fact that the Bible's true and all it teaches, then we also have to understand that the Bible is really clear in the major teaching about salvation, but that there's room for discussion and debate about a whole bunch of important but not essential issues, like the ones I talk about in this book. Now, that's a great, that's a great point. So one of the, and we'll, you know, I was, I was intending on going through this systematically, but you know, there's no way it's, there's so many juicy things to talk about. Um, but one of the, the issues um, that the church obviously is confronting in relating to the LGBTQ community is kind of the, well, let's just agree to disagree on this. And, um, and so I, I certainly agree. Interpretation is not infallible. Um, but, but doesn't, doesn't that sort of open the door to, Hey, let's make almost everything a disputable matter. Yeah. And, um, because certainly, uh, I've read, you know, some of the, the Brownson and others who, who make uh, points beyond, you know, my sophistication to, um, uh, perceive whether or not they're true, but they certainly offer in some ways compelling, uh, reinterpretations of texts. So, so is like, if you take homosexuality as an issue, uh, is it possible just to say, well, this is an example of where that very principle plays out? Well, I, I on one level, I, I do want to say that we need to be open to listening to other uh, interpretations and perspectives. But I think an issue like this, and I don't want to say I don't want to say there are only two categories. That is either something's perfectly clear or something's totally up for debate. Right, there, right. And as I say at the beginning of my section on on sexuality, I begin by saying, well, actually, on this one, the Bible is pretty clear. What's really hard is uh, the next question, which is how do we love same sex attracted people, including same sex attracted Christians, but. Um, on the other hand, uh, as I point out, as you point out, there are some uh, interpretations that are presenting a more affirming approach to the text. I, I would begin by just pointing out no one interpreted the text that way until about 30 years ago. And, and you know, for a lot of things, say women in ministry where there's debate, you could find you know, Christian interpreters going back to the early church and they were more affirming toward women ministry or through the Reformation period and in the early modern period. But you can't find sort of um, affirming interpretations till about 30 years ago. And also, uh, even today, in a minority of the church in the West. So, um so that's kind of a high bar. That doesn't mean it's absolutely wrong, but it's a high bar. And in my book, I, I do interact with uh, a number of the leading 
uh, kind of reinterpretations of texts and, and find them really unconvincing. I mean, they're, 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 we, even for me who want, in a sense, to be honest, I would like to be convinced because I would love to be able to tell people that, you know, two consenting adults can do whatever they want. But that doesn't seem to be what the Bible teaches in the Old and New Testament pretty consistently. So if I could respond to one piece of that, yeah, uh, the, the modern, it, these weren't interpretations until 30 years ago. When you, you come into the book uh, by talking about evolution, creation, yeah. and Genesis, right, right. And, and, there, and you could make a similar argument there, right? That this, that, that the interpretations we're offering of Genesis right. are relatively new because of things we've learned about our world. And um, so, so does that does that mitigate a little bit uh, the the idea that okay we're we're interpreting text differently, but it's because we have new information, just like in the case of, of the evolutionary argument. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I could no actually <laughs> because because I could take you back. I could take you back to Saint Augustine and Origen and a whole bunch of. Uh, early church fathers and all the way through church history for people who read Genesis the way I do for different reasons. I remember I'm not arguing in that first part that the Bible teaches evolution. What I'm arguing in the first, what I'm pointing out in the first part is that Genesis isn't interested in telling us how God did it. Right. So, 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 you know, you go back to Augustine, who says these aren't talking about God actually creating creation in seven 24-hour days or six 24-hour days and then resting on a seventh day. Um, now, he's, of course, not accommodating evolution, and neither am I really in my interpretation, because, uh, but what he's, what he's responding to are people who say, come on, really? This is ridiculous. Why would it take God six whole days to create creation? <laughs> Augustine, and Augustine goes, oh, no, he didn't. If This is just a figurative way of describing creation. He actually did it in a millisecond. So, um, so, so again, my point isn't that we read Genesis in a new way to, um, you know, to accommodate evolution. No, we, we read Genesis consistently with, with people from the early church and, and later recognizing that while the, while the Bible intends to tell us who did it and a whole bunch of other important things, uh, it's not telling us how we did it. So we can go to science to answer that question. And, and it almost seems like you could argue that that, interpretation of Genesis, that it is telling us science. That is actually the new interpretation. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, relative think, right. to the way the way you and I, not, not that that matters, would understand right. it. So, right. go ahead. It's true. I mean, remember right after, I mean, we talked about inerrancy earlier on. Uh, people should go back and read B.B. Warfield, uh, you know, <laughs> in the period right after uh you know, Darwin, where Warfield, um, who's considered the sort of architect of the modern doctrine of inerrancy, 
also is very open to the possibility of evolution provided that, and I would agree with this, provided that we understand evolution as part of God's providential workings to produce human beings. So, um, so it really things started to harden up in the early 20th century, just before the Scopes trial. If you go back and read the book called The Fundamentals, from which we get our word fundamentalist in the early 20th century, two of the three articles on science are favorable toward evolution, which is fascinating to think about. But yep. then, then it got involved in the culture wars, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And then you have certain, you know, um, I, you know, people who are very adamant, like Ken Ham. Uh, yeah, so, um, <laughs> and, and they've been rhetorically successful, um, unfortunately, because I think they're leading us down the wrong direction. I, I would accuse them of misreading the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, really? That's, that's not the way we should read the Bible. What, so, so if Genesis, let's take just Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. If they're not teaching science, the how um, of it, uh, what are they? How should we understand that section? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's, uh, you know, if we have three, four, five hours, I might be able to skim the <laughs> but, um, I know. Just, I know. I'll just start by saying, well, let me, first of all, and I, I think um, uh, more carefully talk about this or in more detail in the book, uh, I'm, I point out that, you know, Genesis 1 to 11 is theological history. It is making historical claims. It's not myth. It's not poetry. But it's describing things that happened in history by using figurative language, which we should immediately recognize as the ancient uh, fathers I talked about did, that you can't have literal 24-hour days uh, without a sun, moon, and stars, which aren't created till the fourth day. And those first three days have evenings and mornings, or, or the whole eyed picture of God breathing on dust is obviously what's called an anthropomorphism, which is figurative language, because God doesn't have lungs. He's a spirit. And, and we could, and I do go into more detail about making that case. Uh, right. But what we learn is that God did it, not Marduk. If we read it in its ancient setting, not Baal. It was Yahweh who did it. And and also it tells us an awful lot about who God is. Um, these are foundational texts. Um, you know, he's, he's transcendent, but also imminent. That is, he's other, but also involved. He creates gender and sexuality, but he himself is not uh, gendered. Um, I mean, we could literally go on and on. And then uh, we could talk about who we are. And, uh, and first of all, and here's, I think, an important point, And this is where I pushed back a little bit on my, or a lot on my friend, uh, Pete Enns on this subject. <laughs> uh, because we both are, we both are, uh, you know, we're comfortable with the idea of evolution. But Pete suggests in his book, The Evolution of Adam, that, that 
science would not allow us to affirm what the Bible teaches, which is that at the origin of the story of humans who have the status of image bearers, that we are morally innocent and capable of moral choice. And then the story in Genesis 3 is telling us why we have a sin problem and an evil problem, because we've chosen not to follow God. We've rebelled against him. And so, um, so I think um, there's an awful lot that we learn. We learn that we're part of creation, but have a special relationship with God. We're different than the animals. We have, we're created in the image of God, which means that we reflect who he is in creation, and we're supposed to be benevolent kings toward the rest of creation. Um, developing that now because I wasn't satisfied just to write one controversial book, but another, <laughs> another, another publisher asked me to write a book on uh, the Bible and public policy. So, oh, perfect. Yeah, so I'm getting into... Uh, Things like, well, in this case, environmental ethics and climate change issues and and all awesome. immigration and abortion and yeah, all those. Would you just would you please critique the heck out of Wayne Grudem's book on that? Oh, yeah, that that will be I'm sorry to say relatively easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry to say oh, it. No, no, no. For one thing, and you know, I I wanna say that Wayne, I've known Wayne for 40 years. I mean, I think I first met him when I was a prospective student at Westminster Seminary and he was a senior there. But I do think he um, has a problematic view towards scripture and toward this particular topic, because I don't think the Bible points us to specific public policies, for one thing. Of course not. And, And, but it gives us principles to think through. And I think he goes too far. And I think he is influenced by his kind of Republican partisanship, but, uh, but which becomes clear at the end of the book. I right. think. <laughs> and just one more comment on this. Tim Keller has an excellent uh, editorial in the New York times about two months ago about mm-hmm. the dangers of partisanship and how, whether, Christians just completely identify themselves with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, um, that that since the Democrats and the Republicans both have uh, stands on things that the Bible would on different areas, you know, but well, yeah. well, that's for the next podcast after the next book. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Hey, what? You're on a roll. Um, uh, so, so let's go back just briefly to evolution because I, I want to make sure. Yeah. Um, your your argument is the Bible is silent on the how. That's yeah. not what it's intending. It's intending to give us theological history, which are historical events spoken of with figurative language. Yeah. That then leaves uh, the door open for science to to unravel the how, and your uh, your argument essentially is that the evidence for for our kind of traditional understanding of evolution is overwhelming yeah i mean i have uh since i'm on the advisory council for the biologos foundation and also work with the science for seminaries program out of the triple as and i have the occasion to rub shoulders and discuss matters with world-class 
uh, biologists who are Christians like Francis Collins and Jeff Schloss mm. and Dennis Fenema. So I'm no scientist, but I can ask them and I, I've heard lectures they've given, had conversations with them. As Francis Collins puts it, there's more evidence in favor of evolution than for virtually any other scientific theory, including the theory of gravity, you know, and so, <laughs> um, so, and, and to be honest, I, I occasionally see these references to books or whatever saying that evolutionary theories in serious right, right. Jeopardy and it's about to collapse. And I don't know where these people are coming from because because that is definitely not the case um, in terms of both the genomic evidence as well as the um, paleoanthropological evidence. Listen, you can throw big words around all you want, <laughs> okay? But Ken, you know. Ken, Ham, Ken Ham told me that it was done in six days, so you can just suck on that. Um, <laughs> So, so one one question about that you deal with a lot of obviously Christian objections to the idea, um, and and one of them, of course, is the historical Adam, and and I'll leave that for the book because that's a pretty pretty complicated, interesting issue. But if God was guiding, and I don't even know if that's the right word, how how does God relate? to evolution. And I know we don't know ultimately, but is there, do you have a sense of what that means and looks like? Because evolution claims there is randomness. And yet from a theistic perspective, we're claiming that, that God was involved in some way. Is that just a a God of the evolutionary gap sort of thing? Or do you have a, have a different view? Well, first of all, and again, this is above my pay grade, but I (laughs) talked to, uh, those biologists I just mentioned about the concept of randomness, which sounds like pure chance, which it's not in their minds. Uh. They, when they say randomness, they say it's just a pattern that's beyond our ability to discern and predict at this moment. Got so, it. so, um, so yeah, I, I, I do, <laughs> I garnered my, my, my understanding enough to write a, I think, a semi-intelligent footnote about this in the book. But, but, but yeah, so I think um, that at least somebody like Francis Collins doesn't think that God just started the process and then yeah. withdrew. So that would be a deistic understanding in the how God is involved in terms of you know, God is involved in everything. And let me, as a biblical scholar, I'm fascinated by the book of Esther. And, you know, Esther is uh, talking about uh, incredible salvation or rescue of the Jewish people in the post-exilic period. And you can explain everything by secondary causes in the book. God's never mentioned once. But anybody who reads the book of Esther and thinks at the end of the book that God had nothing to do with it hasn't really understood the book of Esther. So so God operates through his providence just as dramatically and just as importantly and really as through a miracle. Though there are miracles, of course, too. God can suspend those 
those secondary causes and he you know and things like the resurrection can't be explained by secondary causes so, <laughs> True. Uh, so um but the bible doesn't really doesn't present in my opinion the creation as a miracle i was just with a couple scientists two weeks ago who are working on the origin of life issue oh, you know wow. trying resolve the issue of how um and they're christians they're very vibrant christians but and they think that there uh, may be uh explanation for how organic material came out of inorganic material on the other hand they may never decide that uh because god may have just willed that but, but right. my point would be the Bible doesn't speak one way or the other. So if they come, if scientists do ultimately say, well, you know, um, such and such happened and we were able to replicate, you know, the creation of single cell organisms of some simple sort, um, then, then it wouldn't cause me to doubt my faith or anything like that. But that, that's why I worry about God of the gaps arguments like right. this in, in um, oh, Steve, Stephen Meyer's book, Signature of the Cell, where he tries to argue, can't explain it, never will explain it. Therefore, we can use this as an apologetic tool to convince people God exists. Right. I just think that that's a God of the gaps kind of argument. One of the things that I love um, that you just, you say and demonstrate, and then we'll leave this section, uh, but it's just science can help us read our Bible better. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the reverse seems to be true, maybe in a different way that bi the Bible helps us read science better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for instance, um, when we, I, I think one of the things there were a lot of early Christians who were in on the development of early modern science and they based their, uh, you know, they thought that this might be a fruitful way of inquiry because God created an orderly universe that can yeah. be studied. And, and so, um, yeah. So for instance, in response, say to, my buddy Pete Enns, who <laughs> I, I would say, and, and he really is my buddy. I mean, he was my student. I hired him. We taught together. We've written books together. We hang out a lot together. Um, but we disagree on some things. Uh, and things. And um, so, um, so in response to Pete, who is tempted to say there was no period of innocence because you can't establish that through science, which always seems to be nature, red, tooth, and claw. Right. Um, I say, no, the Bible tells us there was this period. We don't need science to establish that, and it would be unlikely that science could ever establish that. Though it's also interesting, by the way, that um, – that scientists today are talking about the role of altruism in, mm -hmm. in, in evolutionary uh, theory these days. It's not all just survival of the fittest. It's also social organization and mm -hmm. people helping each other and stuff like that. So kind of a fascinating, relatively new um, 
new uh, approach. So the idea, the basic idea would be theology, well, Bible properly understood and science properly understood don't conflict. And yeah. they, they, they reinforce each other, bring clarity to each other, uh, that sort of thing, correct? That's, that's right. And I reflect on the Belgic Confession, so-called two books of God. God speaks to us through scripture and speaks to us through nature. Yes. No. Excellent. So, I mean, I, I, I want to throw that out, to, out there because ultimately you explore these issues in much greater depth. But I thought, man, what a great sort of pithy way to get at a couple of a couple of things. Um, you obviously deal differ with Pete. Speaking of Pete on um, the historicity of the Old Testament, that I think will leave for the book. He's just come out on his podcast saying the Exodus didn't happen. Um, and that's something he's written, you know, about before, uh, and you give evidence for, you know, why an absence of evidence doesn't count as evidence in this particular case. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I just, I refer the reader uh, or the hearer to that, to that section of the book. Um, it, it's the violence part that I, I found, um, interesting in the sense that, and again, here you diverge from, from, uh, Pete and some other, sorts of people. There seem to be two approaches going on today about what what do we do with the the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament? And um and, and could you speak to those two uh different approaches that you critique? Sure. Um so so the two approaches I critique um one more uh seriously than the other uh are on the one hand uh, the uh, an approach taken by uh, Paul Copen, David Lamb, Preston Sprinkle. By the way, all these people are my good friends. <laughs> so I totally. So yeah. So um, and and I really respect and learned an awful lot from all three of them. Particularly, well, I shouldn't even say particularly, but maybe it's only because I read Paul's book as God a Moral Monster first. Yep. yep. And and basically, they work over time to sort of soften the blow in a sense. You know, not they're not at all objecting to the fact that God brings violent judgment against some, but they're trying to deal with issues that bother us all, at least all of us in twenty first century West. Right. That that um, that it looks like some, you know, in the conquest, say, you know, some innocence, which is not a, a biblical term, might be uh, harmed or killed. And it's difficult for us. It looks like genocide, even though, as Paul points out, it's not ethnic genocide because, you know, people aren't being killed because they're Canaanite. They're being uh, killed because they're they're involved in uh, idolatrous, pagan, harmful um, activities. So, um, so, so Canaanites could come over to the Israelite side or flee, as he points out, or or Israelites could come and get the judgment that was coming. The Canaanites, because they kind of joined the Canaanites in their in their beliefs and in their actions. So, um, but, 
but there is an attempt on the part of some to um, to try to, um, as I say, soften the yeah. And and so I say, um, you know, that with that maybe we shouldn't do that. Or, or <laughs> I remember reading. I remember reading one commentary. One one of these. I was reading it in manuscript form as an editor, and somebody was talking about. Uh, uh, about Rahab, you know, and Rahab and everybody in her room would uh, would escape the destruction mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Jericho. And by the end of the section he was writing, he had like 200, 300 people in her room. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it's like a telephone booth or something where all these teenagers, well, they don't do that anymore. We don't have telephone booths. <laughs> But I'm dating myself. It's all right. But, um, but yeah, so um, so while some of that is true, like, for instance, I don't think Jericho, Jericho may have been a military garrison at that time, so there might not have been a lot of civilians around at the time. That's one possibility. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but even if one person dies who say not a soldier it raises the ethical issue in any case regardless 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 yeah so um but the one the the views that i more seriously critique are those of pete and greg boyd in his new book the crucifixion of the warrior god and and also um eric siebert in a book disturbing divine behavior where essentially bottom line is that they argue that the violent God of the Bible is not the actual God. Um, yes. And that, that um, in the case of Greg Boyd, whose book was the most troubling to me, uh, he did his best to kind of interpret away some um, violence, but when he couldn't, he then would appeal to the culturally conditioned, and it's this next part that was most problematic to me, depraved perspective of the human author. And he has one section about Moses. You know, Joshua never should have listened to Moses, even though Moses's words were surrounded by divine signs, because the message was so obviously depraved. And so Joshua, you know, aired by listening to Moses in regard to the conquest. And I'm going that, and, and, and I ended up having the feeling after reading his very lengthy book. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, after I read it, uh, he came out with a short version. I said, wow, I'll <laughs> uh, do respect to him. I think, <laughs> but, um, but I really came away from that book saying he's approaching the Bible as a problem to be solved, not a text to be understood. Um, and and he's engaging in all these. He even, unfortunately for him, I think, calls it you have to read the Bible with a magic eye. And it's kind of like really that 
in and of itself is a problematic phrase. Sure. Um, but, yeah. but that's, isn't he arguing, we had him on the podcast and is, isn't he arguing that, that Jesus on the cross mm-hmm. is the definitive portrait of God, that there are other true portraits, but right. that does, that's the fullest. And that any portrait of God that doesn't square with that one yeah. is suboptimal, I guess. No, no, uh, that's that's exactly his argument. And I interact with that point in my book. Um, so it, there's a rationale to it, but what it ends up doing is pitting Jesus against Moses in a way that I don't think the New Testament would appreciate. Again, Jesus fully affirms the Old Testament. The other thing is he has to say Jesus on the cross, not Jesus in the book of Revelation, not Jesus in his teaching, uh, because he has a very specific idea of what God can be. And this is his mode of of dealing with that. Again, Again, it leads to the Marcion on a practical level. They're not theological Marcionites, but they are practical Marcionites in that essentially they, they use that, uh, you know, Jesus on the cross to basically undermine everything <laughs> through most of the rest of scripture. <laughs> I mean, because I do a survey, you know, of, of the theme of divine violence and, yeah, and, and they're very few, parts of the Bible that don't engage in divine violence. No, don't the topic of divine violence. (laughs) Right. So, so if I may, for our listeners, so, so on the one hand, you've got folks saying, well, it's not as bad as it looks. Uh, On the other hand, you've got people in one way or another saying, Hey, the portraits of God aren't reflecting God. They're either God allowing himself to be pictured this way um, because of the culturally conditioned, you know, uh, approaches of the authors, or, um, we get a fuller revelation later that causes us to realize that that wasn't God to begin with, at least not fully. Um, you on the other hand, (laughs) uh, it's relish, not relish. That's, that's the bad word, but, but you playfully sort of say, no, you actually can't soften it. And you actually can't, uh, get away from the idea because it's all throughout the Bible. It is one of the most significant pictures we get of what God is like. And I, I, I discovered you when you wrote God is a warrior way back in the day. Right. And, and it sounds like your view hasn't changed, um, from then in, 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 in the most fundamental sense. Right. Would you would you speak a bit to how you <laughs> yeah. answer? And again, I mean, for for some, it really is a problem. And and I know yeah. the distinction you're making between a text to be understood. But when you understand the text, you're saying it's as bad as you think. And um, and in fact, it's one of the themes of the whole scripture. So I just want to unleash you <laughs> on your on your five phases. Oh, right. And, and yeah. um and 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 in kind of the implications for us out of that sure um and yeah i actually for 10 years before god is a warrior i i started working on this theme biblical theme back in the early 80s um before it was controversial it was yeah. but um but it was um that doesn't mean i'm 
necessarily right, but it, it does mean I have thought about it a lot. And as I read the Bible, I see a coherent and organic story of God's battle against spiritual and human evil. And, um, and you're right, I, I do use the, um, you know, kind of a five phase approach just to organize the material. It's a kind of teaching device more than anything. And the first two kind of overlap with each other, but I see a number of texts in the Old Testament, that the ones that we're talking about now in the main, which say, uh, which talk about God fights against the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. And these are perceived or um, all of them, God's violence is always in a judgment against sin um, framework. It's not like arbitrary violence. It's not just creating room for, for Israel to dwell in the promised land. Going back to Genesis 15, 16, when God says to Abraham, this land will be yours, but not yet because the sin of the Amorites is not yet uh, fulfilled or filled, or I forget the verb exactly there, but the idea is they don't deserve it yet. Right. <laughs> but they will, but they will. And so, um, so then on the other hand, it isn't Israel right or wrong. It's when Israel sins, God comes as a warrior against them, probably most notably at the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. where the poet of Lamentations um, in chapter 2 keeps referring to the destruction of Jerusalem not as the work of the Babylonians, but as the work of God. God came against them like an enemy. And at the end of the so so those are phases 1 and 2. Then phase 3, I'm describing the prophetic message at the end of the Old Testament time period, which is the warrior is going to return and he will save us from our enemies. And so um, in a place like Daniel chapter 7, after the first part of the vision describing uh, evil kingdoms, human kingdoms, in the using the figurative language of horrific beasts arising out of the sea, we then get a picture of one like the Son of Man riding the cloud mm -hmm. and, and going out and defeating the beast and of course this is ancient storm god imagery god uh you know one like the son of man riding a a cloud chariot into battle and then um and then when we turn to the new testament and john the baptist is kind of repeating the well he's not kind of he's definitely repeating the message of the post-exilic prophets mm -hmm. he says things like the one coming after me will gather all the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire he will chop the axe off. the axe is at the root baby yeah i know the axe is at the root and then jesus comes and john gets put in jail and then um and then jesus goes out and heals the sick exercises demon and preaches the good news to the poor and <laughs> just is going what's going on so he sends two disciples up to Jesus. Are you the one or should we expect another? You know, where's the ax chopping, Jesus? <laughs> and Jesus goes out and does more of the same. And, and, and 
you know, when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter chops off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus says, put away your sword. And and because his battle takes him to the cross, and he defeats the powers by dying and being raised, and that's why Paul uses military language so mm-hmm. often to refer to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But John the Baptist was not wrong. He just didn't understand that Jesus' coming was a two-part affair. And and so the book of Revelation and Jesus himself in Mark 13 and its parallels, uh, Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians talks about that future day uh, when phase five, when God will, Jesus will win the final victory over all human and uh, spiritual enemies. So, um, so uh, yeah, so that's my understanding, which means we live in phase four. We can never use violence, physical violence in the promotion of the gospel. So things like the Crusades or invoking the Old Testament, for the colonization of America were all acts of sin, showing you just how important hermeneutics is, <laughs> you know, that to understand these matters of continuity and discontinuity. Um, but, um, but we are engaged in spiritual battle, Ephesians uh, 6, 10 and following, put on the whole armor of God. And, um, but we shouldn't disown, uh, you know, what we read in the Old Testament. We shouldn't reinterpret what's going to happen in the future, as many people also do. And mm-hmm. and so, um, so, um, so I think it's important. And to remember, I, I have this great quote, and maybe I'll just close my rambling and. Again, I say a lot more in my book. This is <laughs> my book. But, uh, but I, I really find powerful this quote from Mirshav Wolf, um, who's at Yale, used to be at Fuller. Um, and Mirshav can't be accused of being a sort of right-wing <laughs> fundamentalist, though he is, you know, he, he does uh, have a traditionalist uh, theology um, but he reminds us, I think, since he's somebody, as his quote will indicate, who grew up in war-torn Croatia, um, former Yugoslavia, that that some of our our uncomfortableness with this theme of divine violence is partly because we are so comfortable mm-hmm. that uh, as as Christians and as uh, Westerners. It's not that there's no pain in our life, not that there's no threat, but certainly nothing like uh, most people of God through the ages have experienced where their pain and struggle would make them yearn for God to come and save them as he saved the Israelites when they were being attacked by the Egyptians at the Red Sea. But, But just to quickly read a part of this quote, he goes, I used to think that the that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature 
That's exactly why God is wrathful towards some of them. My last resistance, the idea of God's wrath, was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. Then he goes on to describe all the horrific things that happened there and Rwanda and elsewhere. And then he concludes by saying, um, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the blood bath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now, that, that quote doesn't solve all our qualms about the theme of divine violence, but it does speak to, say, somebody like Siebert or Boyd, who just completely disowns the idea that God could be violent toward anyone. I mean, he, Boyd even goes so far as to say that God would never be directly violent toward the spiritual powers and authority. Where And he's being consistent when he says that because, of course, spiritual powers and authority are also sentient beings, like human beings. So if you think God is destroying Satan, um, then uh, you have a similar problem, as Boyd consistently says, to mm -hmm. the idea that God would destroy Hitler or any more ordinary evil person. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot to think about. These are difficult. Oh, my Lord. And we've even touched sexuality. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I really deeply appreciate it very, very much. Again, uh, the book is Confronting Old Testament Controversies. Tremper Longman III. Thank you uh, for joining us on the podcast. Sure. Thank you, Mike.